The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you believe in like Buddha, it's my dharma, it's my purpose, you know, and then he got his karma. (laughs) Sometimes in the depths of the dark and vast underbelly that is true crime, a homicide occurs that exceeds the interest of those immediately involved in the case. A crime so bizarre and with multiple layers that it almost doesn't sound real. Surely you know the examples we're talking about. The Chris Watts or the Michelle Carters of the world. What's strange is that we don't often say Shanann, Bella, or Celeste Watts or Conrad Roy when referring to these crimes in conversation. So why do some of these cases explode into celebrity-like territory? Well, there are several reasons. For one, the media loves a sensational story. If there's murder intermingled with romance and twists and turns similar to what you'd find in your favorite mystery thriller film, nine times out of ten, big networks will bite and work to quickly publish it to the masses. The main incentive for those corporate machines are boosts in ratings, clicks, downloads, and big ad revenue dollars in return. And let's face it, it's a business. We'd be lying if we said we didn't play a small role in that. A far less lucrative role, arguably with a bit more integrity attached, but a role nonetheless. With all that being said, it's a little easier now to comprehend how and why some crimes seemingly take on a life of their own, eventually becoming daytime television reconstructions, movies, books, and when you know it, even hit podcasts. The problem with this model is, when a murder case gets too big, there's usually some disconnect, a detachment where the lines between entertainment and the lives of everyday real human beings, just like you and I, become blurred. Those on the receiving end of these tragedies can easily wind up being perceived as mere characters instead of real, living, breathing people or in worst cases, the people they once were. A victim's trauma can be lost or overlooked in these scenarios, even if the content creator has the purest of intentions. In 2016, a murder of this magnitude would occur, but we won't be diving incredibly deep into that case on this episode. The reason being that it's simply been covered far too extensively. Surprisingly, some productions have covered the case as ethically as anyone possibly could, with dignity and proper research. Therefore, we won't try to regurgitate the facts that others have already accomplished presenting. What we will focus on, however, is life after that specific murder case, particularly as it pertains to the victims, as well as a discussion surrounding domestic violence. We had the opportunity to speak with one of the survivors of this crime, a woman who has gained worldwide attention since this tragedy has occurred. 
So who is she and which case is it? You've surely asked yourself this by now. Well, the offender is someone you may or may not have heard of before. An individual by the name of John Meehan. Dirty John tells the story of John Meehan, a master of deception. We're meeting some of the women who found themselves drawn into the world of Dirty John. And there's even a podcast about it called Dirty John. But here's what you need to know about the real Dirty John. A true crime podcast so popular, it's being turned into a Bravo miniseries. Dirty John. Okay, so my name is Tara Newell. No doubt by now most of you have likely heard of the infamous Dirty John. But the true hero of this worldwide phenomenon is actually Tara Newell. And we'll hear a lot more from Tara in just a bit. But first, some context. Back in 2014, a woman by the name of Deborah Newell, Tara's mother, was looking for love and by all means thought she had finally found it via the powers of online dating. She was a very successful woman as the owner of a home furnishing and decor business. Deborah hadn't been frequenting the dating pool much during this period, but figured it was time she might as well jump back in. This is where John Meehan, or Dirty John, as some of you may know him, comes into play. Deborah and John went on their first date at a fancy restaurant in Irvine, California. John presented himself as a charming physician, an anesthesiologist specifically. He told Deborah all about his practice in Iraq with Doctors Without Borders, a humanitarian effort providing treatment to individuals in conflict zones and in countries affected by disease. Long story short, John was not a doctor at all. He was merely a former nurse pretending to be someone that he wasn't. But it would be some time before this ugly truth, among many more, were finally revealed, and his and Deborah's new romantic relationship moved along rather swiftly in the interim. Deborah Newell remained optimistic, of course not having become any wiser to the true identity of her now boyfriend just yet. John started coming around more and more to her home, and her daughters Tara and Jacqueline perceived his behavior as extremely odd almost right away, as their mother had just met this man and something just seemed off about him. Jacqueline was the more vocal one in expressing her disgust for her mother's new love interest. The feeling was mutual for Tara, yet she remained more reserved in her opinions, in the beginning at least. Tara was also living in Las Vegas at this time, so she didn't exactly have a full scope on what was truly going on just yet. After some time passed, Jacqueline and Tara were convinced that something wasn't quite right about this guy John. He wore medical scrubs to nearly every event, formal or informal, and he would constantly say that he was held up at work upon arriving home or to any family function, almost exaggeratedly attempting to convince those around him that he was in fact a doctor. Deborah just saw him as a busy physician, something that she was undoubtedly attracted to, in fact. Jacqueline, on the other hand, wasn't buying it at all and began to ask questions. Questions like, If he's a doctor, then why are his fingernails always so dirty? Certainly a fair inquiry and perhaps an even better observation. Despite her daughter's concern for who their mother was dating, 
Deborah and John decided to avoid this tension by moving into their own home together on Balboa Island in Newport Beach, roughly eight miles up the road. To everyone's surprise, after less than two months of dating, John and Deborah were married. While Deborah was in Las Vegas on a business trip, they tied the knot at a courthouse with no guests or family present. Meanwhile, Deborah's family began taking a harder look into John Meehan's past. They eventually hired a private investigator and placed a GPS tracking device on the vehicle he drove, which was actually Deborah's car, not his, to be clear. It turns out that the family's suspicions were indeed justified. They eventually learned that John actually had addresses in several different states across the country, and his full criminal history was also unearthed. They learned that he was never a physician, but instead a former nurse that had actually done time in prison for stealing pharmaceutical-grade drugs from his former employer. As if that wasn't enough, it was confirmed that John had also been conning and terrorizing various women for years prior to meeting Deborah. Three separate women had active restraining orders out against the man she was now head over heels in love with. Three others had also previously requested court orders of a similar nature. They uh, confronted me with all this information. I went to John and I said, here's everything that the family's saying. And he said he could prove that it was all wrong. He took me to a lawyer that said, it's all wrong. He's the victim. And then there were multiple things and he had an answer for everything. Deborah didn't want to believe the man that she had fallen in love with was living some sort of double life. Her love was blind during this period. Even so, there were some things Deborah could not ignore. They began to fight, and the relationship eventually became volatile. They did separate for a brief time, but sure enough, they eventually got back together. Even with all the evidence her family had provided thanks to the private investigator, it wasn't until this pivotal moment where Deborah realized she might actually be in grave danger. He went to the mail, and in the mail, I actually found a letter from Jill. And I opened it, and he went up and he grabbed it so quickly from me, and he said, you can't open my mail. And it was from somebody stating that he had gone to jail with him. Before Deborah could even attempt to process what she was reading from John's former cellmate, her husband appeared and angrily ripped the letter from her hands. For whatever reason, this was the hard, tangible wake-up call that Deborah needed. It was at this very moment she knew she had to begin making plans to get away from whoever this man truly was before it was too late. Deborah Newell set up an exit plan and put it into motion. She met with professionals to seek guidance, and they informed her that she was under the coercive control of John Meehan. Along with the help of her family, she gradually and carefully took steps toward her escape. Ultimately, this resulted in Deborah going into hiding for some seven long months. I had to leave my business, uh, my home, I literally couldn't see people like I used to. My whole life changed. John begged Deborah to get back with him, but she'd had enough. By April of 2016, she filed for divorce. 
John, who had since moved to Nevada after Deborah disappeared, began sending her threats, demanding money and making promises to ruin her life, including her professional career. A few months later in June, John stole Deborah's Jaguar from her office parking space in Irvine. The vehicle was found soon after a block away, soaked in gasoline and set partially aflame. John was caught on surveillance camera committing the act. It apparently fell short of completely engulfing the car in flames, as he'd intended. There's much more to this story leading up to this point. In the podcast, Dirty John navigates through all of the meticulous details of this case, covering it in its entirety if you want to check it out and learn more. But for the sake of our summary, we'll fast forward just a tad toward the ending, where someone would survive a deadly attack and someone else, unfortunately, wouldn't be so lucky. August 20th, 2016. Deborah Newell's daughter Tara was on her way back to her Newport Beach apartment. She had one thing on her mind, and that was to get ready for a Jason Aldean concert scheduled for later that evening. As she pulled into her complex's parking garage, her dog began barking incessantly, and a man standing near his car with the trunk open. Tara paid the individual no mind other than quickly acknowledging him as a homeless man due to his ragged appearance. As she parked her car and proceeded to get out of the vehicle, she hadn't noticed that the man lurking in the shadows was now standing directly in front of her. He proceeded to grab her by the hips, looked her in the eyes and said, Do you remember me? After a brief moment of shock, she quickly recognized that the six-foot, two-inch man grabbing her by the waist was John Meehan, her mother's deranged ex-husband. Before Tara could even react, John forcibly placed his large palm over her mouth, grabbing her and attempting to walk her toward his trunk. Tara instinctively bit down as hard as she could, but John continued his violent assault. He then began punching Tara toward her midsection, or at least that's what she thought he was doing. With her adrenaline flowing at an all-time high, she didn't even realize that John was actually holding a large kitchen knife and had been stabbing her. Tara went into full defense mode. Her impulse reaction was to fight rather than flee. She raised her purse to her chest to protect her heart. She then wrestled with the large 57-year-old man, and they both hit the ground. John pinned Tara down with his knees, and she frantically tried to bicycle kick the man off her in an upward motion. During the struggle, Tara managed to punt the knife from his hand, causing it to land just to the right of her. Tara's dog then came to her aid, biting at John's ankle, trying to free its owner from danger. While sprawled out there on the concrete, she desperately reached out to grab a hold of the free blade. Once she finally did grab hold of it, she turned the weapon on her attacker without hesitation, unleashing a fury of downward thrusts into John's body. Tara continued to stab him a total of 13 times, with the last two being to his forehead, and the final blow delivered directly to his eye socket. Finally, after an attack that must have felt like an eternity, the threat was eliminated once and for all. How do you solve a crime in reverse? When you believe that someone was murdered, 
but have no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. John Meehan was revived on scene by EMS and subsequently rushed to the Orange County Global Medical Center, where he remained on life support for a brief time, only he wasn't going to make it. He died a few days later after eventually succumbing to his injuries. Tara would make a full recovery, of her physical wounds at least. And there you have it, the expedited version of Dirty John. The media naturally had a field day when this story originally broke. Bravo made a dramatized TV series out of it, and the Oxygen Network put out a documentary series as well. Most outlets made it a point to focus predominantly on the fact that Tara had spoken out and attributed shows such as Dexter, Burn Notice, and specifically The Walking Dead to helping her survive that day. She went on record to say that stabbing someone through the eye is the fastest way to the brain, the most successful form of a, quote, kill shot, she said. She went on to say that the act of killing John in this manner must have been inspired by the zombie series. There are several captivating aspects to this case, yet being that it was already so heavily publicized, we thought we would take a different approach. The main thing we thought we could contribute And what we wanted to shed a stronger light on is the broader topic of domestic violence in this case. We'd like to note that we recognize our position as men in this discussion, both from our writer's standpoint and my role as the host and creator of Invisible Choir. We'll never pretend to fully understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of women affected by such horrible forms of manipulation and abuse at the hands of violent men. With that being said, recognizing our place here also means realizing the power even a small podcast such as ours can have. We'll continue to use this platform to help others whenever the opportunity presents itself, but some topics just aren't for us to offer adequate reflection or advice on. That's why we wanted to talk to someone who has truly earned that right, and who better to provide insight on the complexities of domestic violence than the woman who put an end to one man's monstrous reign of terror when she killed Dirty John. And that person, of course, is Tara Newell. I am best known for the Dirty John series and being a survivor for taking down my stepdad. I was 25 at the age of that event happening, and I am now 31 years old. Tara was alone in a parking garage when she was forced to make a life-or-death decision that day. And in that moment, it was kill or be killed in the most visceral and literal sense. Having been six years removed since the day she courageously took down her attacker, in addition to her mother's abuser, we wanted to know, most importantly, how Tara is doing and what she is up to now. Yeah, so I have been up to a lot of stuff since everything happened. I have been doing life coaching since to help other women because so many women reach out to me and ask advice. 
with what they're going through. And because I came out of it on the other end, so strong, I'm a real pillar for a lot of people to come to. And then on the side, I've been doing dog walking, um, house sitting right now. I'm at someone's house, house sitting. Staying busy is important for Tara. She spends most of her days helping other women, teaching workshops, answering messages online, and working other various gigs to make extra income. An interesting way Tara has been able to connect with even more people, believe it or not, is through the popular video-based app, TikTok. I have started a TikTok actually recently. I am a millennial. I'm not a Gen Zer, so I wasn't too familiar with like the start of TikTok and the true crime space on TikTok. I didn't know it was a thing on there until my friend Collier Landry told me like, you need to get on TikTok and tell your story. It's so hard when it's like people know my attacker's name, but they don't know my name. And so I came on TikTok to tell my narrative and my story because when you do a show, it's like, or a podcast, and I appreciate the platforms for letting me tell my story. However, I don't get to tell exactly how I want it told. The friend Tara mentions Collier Landry is another person with an incredible story of overcoming trauma. Landry's father brutally murdered his mother when he was just 11 years old. Tara and Collier have become close through their mutual grief and understanding of pain. Pretty early on into our conversation, Tara went on to express her frustrations as they pertain to how certain entities have capitalized on her situation. This is something she clearly wanted to express, and it's something we'll go into much more detail about in just a few moments. Tara explained to us the value she sees in social media. She uses platforms such as TikTok and Instagram as a way for her voice to be heard and a way to tell her story firsthand rather than solely through podcasts or TV shows. This is a big reason we were so glad to have her on Invisible Choir. We wanted to listen to the woman everyone seems to be so compelled to speak for and not with. And without a doubt, she's making sure people are listening now. She posted the following clip to her enormously popular TikTok, and it reached way more people than she could have ever imagined. Hi guys, I am Tara, and I killed my stepdad in self-defense. This simple six-second clip currently has over 4.7 million views. The internet can be a strange place, and Tara is the first to admit that especially after reading some of the comments under the video. Many users made it a point to acknowledge the t-shirt she's seen wearing in the video, which reads, Daddy's Lil Monster. It's from the movie Suicide Squad and was a complete coincidence, according to Tara. But that doesn't mean she didn't hear about it from the peanut gallery in the comments section. It's a mixed bag of people, she says, while the majority of her interactions online are those reaching out with words of kindness expressing how her story has in some way helped them. There'll always be the, quote, trolls comfortably typing hurtful one-liners from behind their keyboards. But if we've learned anything about Tara by now, it's that she is incredibly strong. She's endured more emotional distress than any one person ever should. and We'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge her mother, Deborah, in that same conversation. We were curious how she was doing after all this time as well and how their relationship has changed since. 
My mom is doing okay. There is always ebbs and flows of trauma. You know, one day you're great, you're doing well. And then the next day something happens that triggers you and puts you into this state of fight or flight mode or even fawn mode because we've been around these toxic people for so long. And John was a psychopath, but my mom has dated so many toxic men before that. And so that was really a normalcy to us. Um, maybe not in the sense of John trying to try to kill us and from there, but this toxic, um, these toxic men in our lives were so common. And so I think that the show has made us grow closer together and everything coming out because we had to confront everything because we're going on TV shows and talking about it. So we have to deal with everything that we're talking about. And it really allowed us to bond more together. I think that we've had a lot of fights about things, but it's important to have that communication and move to a different space where before we didn't have great boundaries with each other. So we really had to learn what was healthy. It's truly remarkable that through such tragedy and pain, this mother-daughter bond has actually been strengthened. They've been forced to overcome this lifelong obstacle together, only bringing them closer through shared trauma. Tara goes on to admit that John wasn't the first man in her mother's life who was manipulative and potentially dangerous, however. One of my stepdads used to stalk my mom and literally watch her when she was in her stores and just sit there in his car. Talking about domestic violence and people's past abusers is so complicated and so fragile. And while discussing these topics are equally difficult as they are delicate, Tara knows the conversation is very necessary. We quickly learned that the dealings of domestic violence in Tara's family didn't just begin and end solely with her mother, Deborah. See, while Deborah has been in other volatile relationships before meeting John, the problems run much deeper, with origins rooted much further in the past. Tara was willing to explain exactly what she meant by this when we began discussing her aunt Cindy, her mother's sister. Tragically, more than 30 years before Tara killed John Meehan, Cindy was murdered by her husband of 13 years. My mom's sister was killed by her husband. He shot her in the head and then he shot himself to try to like cover it up. Back in 1984, before Tara was even born, the perpetual cycle of violence began one that would plague this family for years to come, when Cindy Newell was gunned down by her husband and longtime abuser, Billy Vickers. Tara opened up to us about how this tragedy affected not only her mother, but her entire family as a whole. And it wouldn't be until much later on in life when Tara realized this suffering was in fact generational, a trend that was inevitably doomed to repeat itself if someone or something didn't put an end to it. We discussed how Tara may very well be the person to have finally broken this cycle in her family. 
I kind of saw the residuals of my mom and he got out of jail and he was out all these functions. And I could just tell my mom her energy, like she would be stiff. She wouldn't want to react. Yes, you did hear that correctly. Billy Vickers, the man who killed his wife, Cindy, with a gunshot wound to the head, was released from prison after serving less than three years behind bars. The couple had just recently divorced not long before the murder. Vickers was jealous of how his then ex-wife began moving on without him, and after killing Cindy, he shot himself in the stomach and called 911 for help. Vickers would go on to make a full recovery from his self-inflicted injuries, and he appeared in court for a preliminary hearing roughly one month later. Billy Vickers' attorney claimed he committed the act in a, quote, state of temporary unconsciousness. Shockingly, he was acquitted of first-degree murder by a jury of his peers. He'd later plead guilty to a second-degree manslaughter charge and was given a five-year sentence, though he only served a slightly over half of that. One of the reasons most believe Billy Vickers got off so easily was that Tara's own grandmother testified in his defense. My grandma had a relationship with him in a sense and she has been conditioned to forgive everyone to believe men more so opposed to girls and whatnot my grandma actually testified and that lessened his time this guy was a horrible guy it's crazy because you know that is another not side effect but kind of like a hint that there was a generational trauma that my family has been raised to be these women that see these men as such a higher power and kind of on a pedestal. And so that's what my family's been used to is doting after the men. And it's really interesting that when you're the naive person and you're with all these men and you don't have that awareness, you're in so much danger. In a lot of families where abuse happens, A lot of the times it's these narcissistic men. And then when you've been in that generational cycle, you keep producing these empathetic women and then these narcissistic men, and you don't break the cycle until you bring awareness. Tara has learned over time to be very honest with herself. She's clearly taken a lot of time to analyze these patterns in her own family. Patterns that have unfortunately been ingrained in the fiber of that familial history for generations. After hearing this, we began to see why solutions to these issues are never simply black and white. The psychology of why people gravitate toward or can't escape dangerous relationships once they're in them is extremely complex. And Tara admits that knowledge of self is key in finding peace. But that knowledge didn't come until much later on down the road in her own recovery. Tara continues to heal to this day. But what about those who aren't there yet? What about the women who are in the thick of it now at this very moment and need help getting out? We wanted to know specifically what her mother Deborah did to escape what her plan was, and what Tara learned by watching her mother go through that process. So my mom ended up meeting with a lawyer before she left John. 
because she wanted to plan her way out. During this time, leaving the abuser, it's the most dangerous time. So she had to be extremely careful. What she started to do was, first, you can't allow your significant other during this time to catch light of anything. You want to treat them how you normally treat them. You don't want to start conflicts with them. You want to be the easygoing narcissist dream in a sense, just during this time. Because you just don't want to create that awareness that there's an issue and that you're getting out right now. So you need to be a really good actor right now. And then you start to put money aside if you can. You need to text people or just meet up with people that are your friends. If you have any sign of physical abuse, have them document it. And then that's going to be your safe person. And this person shouldn't be attached to your abuser, but they also might like see some speculation that like something with him is not right. And so it's really important to confide into a friend, but a safe friend, have them have the documents of everything. And then if you can meet with a lawyer, um, there are a lot of lawyers that do pro bono stuff. And if you call up, um, a hotline, um, the domestic violence hotline, they also will help you guide you through the steps of leaving your abuser. And then when it's that time, they'll have a space set up for you. Or if you have the financial means to, you have to set up like a place, a safe place. Um, I recommend staying with people afterwards just because you want to be around people and have safeties and numbers for a little bit and then hopefully transition into court and then getting away from him completely. All great advice. However, Tara knows better than most that this is all easier said than done. Not everyone has the money for an attorney, but she wants to remind people that there are resources out there and steps one can take to plan and make a safe exit. With that being said, she doesn't sugarcoat the challenges. She went on to provide examples of the difficulties her mother faced firsthand while trying to distance herself from John. One of those obstacles, sadly, involved police not believing her story. So when my mom tried to get the restraining order, it was extremely frustrating because she would go to these cops, tell her story, and they're like, well, he hasn't hit you. And... It sucks because this person is literally sending threats and telling the my mom, my sister, that he's going to kill them, that he's going to dump my sister's body at the bottom of the ocean, like mafia style. And he also made a comment about shooting her with a sniper rifle in front of my mom. So it's like the psychopath. John, he knew what to do in order to not get a restraining order. It was like he would say enough to give us a threat, but then it was not enough to claim it was a threat, if that makes sense. He would send my sister pictures of her birth certificate with spit on it. He would send our location sometimes to us. And just to like let us know that he's watching, if we do anything, he's ready to come after us. And he has all the power. 
So he just really terrorized us, but the police didn't take that seriously. And I believe it was Laguna Beach Police where she went to. She also went to Newport Beach Police. And then she also went to Irvine Police. And the Irvine Police actually had a case with him lighting my mom's car on fire. And they could have arrested him over that. And I actually spoke to one of the officers afterwards because he was actually my high school officer who got the case. And he felt tremendous remorse for not being able to get that guy, not being able to get John. And because it was his job, he could have prevented me from being attacked. And, you know, these police have to take these cases seriously. And they can't look at a lady like they're crazy just because they're emotional. It's discouraging to hear how many opportunities the authorities did have to intervene before it ever got to this point. And one can only hope that after a case such as this unfolds, we learn from it in some way, and the powers that be take a good hard look inward and make changes to a system that is obviously still very much flawed. But there's another system Tara believes is also flawed as well, and that's the entertainment industry. She was very honest and transparent with us about the inner workings and what happens when a victim's pain is inevitably sold for profit. And she did not hold back in letting us know exactly how she feels about all of it. There is like a group of us, a group of survivors that are trying to change the narrative and bring awareness to ethical true crime. The LA Times, they have my story. They have 87 million views or listens to my, or to Dirty John. And I don't get any money from that. But yet anyone who, you know, the host gets paid. Um, the people that put it together get paid. Everybody else gets paid for their time except for the survivor. And then, you know, with podcasts and stuff, like I have a problem with like my favorite murder making a 20 million Amazon deal, but yet they don't pay their people that are on the show and they don't even, they don't even have a lot of those people on the show. But my friend was on My Favorite Murder and she is a survivor. And this is like the first survivor that like they're really bringing on their podcast and they need to do better because They literally talk about these true crime cases, make jokes about it. I think they made a joke about me in one of their episodes. And I was like, excuse me, this is so rude. This is not something that you could joke about. And then there's so many other people. Like, I think Crime Junkie has done my story without my permission. I'm here. I'm alive. I fought for my life. Like, I'm, you know, you hit me up. I'm so easy to be accessible to and i'm alive where most of these women are not alive i would like to use my voice and it just sucks that like they probably made like 10 grand off of my episode you know and they're just making money off of people's traumas but yet they haven't had me on but yeah i'm gonna get angry and i'm gonna start saying stuff because it's not fair for everybody to be making money off of my story but me and you know i did make money off of the bravo thing 
but it was like a lump sum I was given. I asked for residuals. I wasn't able to get residuals. And now if you think what Julia Gardner made compared to what I made, like it's ridiculous. Julia Garner, who you may know as Ruth Langmore from the hit Netflix show Ozark, also played the role of Tara Newell in the Bravo series Dirty John. According to Tara, the show is currently in production for its upcoming third season. These are all valid and brutally honest points she brings up, but most people don't hear about what happens behind the scenes in true crime. And just to reiterate what we covered in the opening... We're not ignorant to the fact that we play a role in this discussion as well. And if we're being completely honest, there can be an extreme sense of guilt or feeling of uncertainty when bringing another individual's turmoil to the forefront using this very platform. The cases we cover literally represent the worst day in someone's life, and that reality is not lost on us. After being at this for the past three years, we do, however, feel a greater sense of responsibility to make sure that we're doing right by these families and by approaching this content with care. Unfortunately, this isn't the case for every podcast, and Tara Newell has experienced that reality firsthand. The truth is, there's a very fine line between exploitation and presenting information on tragic yet very real life occurrences. Our conversation with Tara presented a greater opportunity for self-reflection, and as creators, we believe those moments are important to have. One thing is for certain, stronger ethics are definitely needed in this space overall. And Tara was more than happy to speak with us and was extremely easy to get in touch with, just like she said. What upsets her most is that some of the programs she mentioned didn't even attempt to contact her. And I think we can all agree that's the very least someone can do before they take the liberty of telling someone else's story. Ethics aside for a moment, let's be honest. Compassion doesn't exactly pay the bills. And Tara wasn't shy in telling us she could definitely use the money. She told us dog sitting had always been one of her greatest joys. And it was also a main source of her income before John met his demise in the parking garage that day. She revealed that big dogs and barking dogs in general are still a very real trigger for her. It brings her right back to the day of the murder, when her dog tried to help save her. Tara's ability to make money, even years later, has been greatly affected by this. She wanted to make it very clear that her frustration doesn't stem from a place of needing to become wealthy off of what happened to her. Instead, she's simply expressing that she needs to make a living too, just like everyone else. These people that have established jobs, like they don't get that I had my whole life changed and taken from me. Like I'm not able, like I help watch dogs now and stuff. I cannot do my life how I used to at all. I had my biggest joy taken from me, which was dogs. And I'm still trying to rebuild that and rebuild my life back. But People need to understand that I need to be making money off of telling my story too, because this is almost all that I do now besides doing my side jobs. The various moving parts of the business side of true crime are certainly tricky. That's without question. 
the fact that there is a business aspect at all is very odd, and that's just the reality. Believe it or not, it didn't stop there for Tara and her family with regard to the monetization issue. See, it wasn't just big networks looking to capitalize on their story. John Meehan's immediate family was too. John's sisters. We ended up getting into a fight afterwards because they saw us doing all these TV shows Then they wanted to get paid for it no matter what. And this time we were like, well, we just want to spread the awareness. But they were like, no, we need money. Then she was going to do it for a free trip. One of them. I'm not going to say which one. And then the network was like, well, we only need Deborah and Tara to go to New York. And it doesn't really make sense for, you know, to fly you to New York. So, and I think my mom promised them that, like, if she wasn't able to go to New York, then we weren't going to go. But I hadn't had any communication with that. And I think my mom was trying to be a people pleaser and make them happy and stuff. But then they got extremely upset at my mom and me and literally put FUs all over our Facebook and everything. And then one of his sisters told me, like, I should watch my back and stuff. And... I decided to block her because I told her I was like, that's the last thing that John said to me. So, no. I understand that they have their own set of trauma and stuff, but someone tried, their brother tried to kill me, and I have a right to talk about that. It's unimaginable what it must be like to go through what Tara's family has endured. And before you can even begin to process or cope with that trauma, you're met with hostile disputes over money from the family members of the very man who tried to kill you, no less. I think it's important to remember here that Tara and her mother never asked for any of this to happen to them. Deborah never wanted to live in fear, and Tara never asked for a man to grab her by the hips and subsequently attack her with a kitchen knife. How to deal with this all after the fact is beyond our comprehension, but from the sounds of it, Tara's handling it the best way she knows how. And that's day by day. A part of attempting to regain a sense of normalcy in her life is trying to date romantically again, something Tara still finds very difficult. When Tinder and Bumble are pretty much the only way of meeting people these days, it's easy to see her cause for concern. These sites are very similar to the one Deborah used to meet John when this nightmare all began back in 2014 perhaps just a bit more updated and convenient. But having that reminder in the back of her head every time she tries to meet someone new cannot be easy. I struggle with dating. (laughs) I just laugh because I feel like everybody struggles with this in general. Most people do, right? A lot of the guys that I will date will be interested in me because of my story. And then that makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes, or I am drawn to a lot of people that have interesting stories. And then we need to navigate like if this is a trauma bond or not. So there's a lot to figure out with dating and I'm still working through it, but I feel like I have pretty good boundaries. I know what I want and I've come to a good place of like being and knowing what I want with myself and what I can't accept in a partner and whatnot. And just during my stage of my life right now, I think that 
the dating apps are terrible. No offense if anyone's on them. I feel like certain guys I get really nervous around because I don't like them to touch me. And certain guys will just grab me by my waist and think it's okay. And that's actually like a trigger point for me because that's how John grabbed me my attack. And so I have to like work on if anyone tries to touch me. These are the things most of us take for granted or are lucky enough not to have to worry about. Things like the barking dog in the neighborhood or the physical touch from a spouse or partner. These are struggles that Tara still fights to overcome. It's unfair how the actions of one terrible human being can change the lives of so many others, even after they're gone. The residual ripple effects of trauma are very real, and Tara is living proof of that. A big part of her message, particularly to women who have found themselves recovering from similar circumstances, is that you have to actively work at healing. She says trauma is not something you can sit with and expect it to magically disappear. Tara is an advocate for victims of trauma, once they're ready, of course, to be assertive in rewiring the body and mind by making healthy lifestyle choices. In her opinion, the expression, time heals all wounds, doesn't exactly apply as the sole solution to regaining her life back. Yeah, time will heal trauma is bullshit because you can have as much time as you want, but you could be doing all these unhealthy things and making yourself sicker. You know, the body holds and stores trauma in the body and that kind of comes stagnant energy where it turns into illnesses, disease, autoimmune disorders are so common with people that struggle from trauma and stuff and um, anxiety, just like, and then the nervous system, if you're nervous all the time and you're living in this fight or flight mode, your body is not letting other parts of the body work fully. Like your digestive system slows down um, and you're just not allowing your body to function. So, you know, you're going to probably have IBS issues and um, just a lot of digestive issues. Um, Acid reflux is extremely common with people that suffer from trauma and whatnot because the body rejects your trauma. And unless you're working on it and moving around your trauma, your your trauma is just going to stay stuck in there and make you sicker. If you are feeling like you are so anxious and everything, you can do yoga and there is free YouTube videos. There are also a lot of free places that offer donation-based yoga where you can go, you can not give anything that day. You can give $5 a different day, $10. Um, There's a lot of places that want to work with you with that. EMDR, or Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy, is another practice Tara has made part of her regular self-care routine. This is a form of psychotherapy that is meant to alleviate PTSD symptoms and the memories attached to a root trauma. The act itself involves asking a patient to recall images, phrases, or emotions connected to that triggering event. While doing so, they're asked to simultaneously move their eyes side to side or begin tapping their hand. The study does not involve having the patient recall graphic details of said event, yet it is indeed focused on addressing triggers consciously while not suppressing them. While Tara says it may not be for everyone, she says EMDR therapy has helped her infinitely. 
It is so inspiring to hear how far Tara Newell has come. Her story is unique among the survivors we've spoken with, and that she not only had to reacclimate and readjust to virtually everything in her life, she's also had to manage the strange sense of celebrity that's come with it. We were curious to know what this is like for her and what challenges she faces in that regard, as it would seem this level of notoriety might serve as a burden at times when all she's really trying to do is get better. Not a lot of things bother me. (laughs) Well, I think it's inappropriate when people come up to me and are like, oh man, you're that girl that stabbed that guy in the eye. I'm like, whoa, that's a lot to take in. But yeah, hi, I'm Tara. (laughs) So I think that like when people come up to me and they're like, oh, you stabbed that guy in the eye, that's insensitive. But you have to just be careful how you approach survivors. Tara certainly has an impressive attitude considering everything she's been through. And while it is indeed a loaded question, we asked if there were one thing she wanted the world to know, in her own words, and not through some Hollywood scripted drama series or voice acted true crime podcast. I want people to know that no matter what they experience in life, you can always make yourself better or get to a better place. Who I was five years ago isn't even who I am now. Before wrapping up my interview with Tara Newell, I asked her pointedly, given everything that she had been through, if she could go back in time to the very moment Dirty John Meehan came into her family's life, would she have done anything different? If she could magically open another door, that would have effectively taken them down a much different, more stable path, one completely devoid of his presence or influence. One where they could have avoided all of the abuse, manipulation, and trauma. I found her response surprising, yet given what I've learned about her character in such a short period of time, I suppose not. The trauma, you know, brings so much stuff forward and it it just, you know, it sucks that someone tried to kill me. But at the end of the day, I would never want my life to be any different because I believe that it was supposed to happen and how it happened. You know, it brought so many great things forward. And this guy is no longer here and can no longer torment any more women anymore. And that makes me so happy. If you'd like to know more about what Tara Newell is working on next, check out her Instagram, at Tara Newell. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-E-W-E-L-L. She and Collier Landry are about to launch a new ethical true crime podcast called The Survivor Squad, bringing you voices and stories from the survivors of true crimes themselves. If you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic abuse or violence, or any of the issues we've highlighted in this week's episode, Tara encourages you to reach out to her directly for support and guidance. You can visit her website at taranewellsurvival.com. You may also contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233 or visit thehotline.org. 